Fans of the Dynasty Invest podcast, if you feel like there was one particular episode in the back catalogue in the anthology of Dynasty Invest podcast episodes that really, really, really was massively valuable to you, feel free to share that with a fellow dental colleague who's in a similar position so their understanding of finance can be elevated and they can hit the next level of financial success in their life. Also, as well as that, if you could take two seconds to rate and review this podcast, it would mean the world to me. What that would mean is that it drives this podcast further in terms of reach so that more dentists across the world can be able to benefit from the knowledge contained therein. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Dentists Who Invest podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Dentist Who Invest podcast. A killer episode we've got lined up today with my main man, Ali Jawad, and he is here today because he shares an interesting philosophy on mortgages, the four P's of mortgages. Do you know what? We've had a little bit of a recurring theme in the podcast recently because we've had quite a few chaps on to speak about mortgages, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Ali Jawad, or AJ to his friends, AJ for, uh, for short. Uh, because you have, uh, as I say, a bit of a unique philosophy that people will benefit from hearing. How are you, my friend? How's things with you today? I'm doing well, man. It's uh, it's Easter Monday. I've had my my chocolate uh, already before before I started fasting. That's uh, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, man, I'm looking forward to this. Thank you for having me on, James. Oh, dude, my pleasure, my pleasure. I'm here to learn as well because this is all new to me, the four Ps of mortgages. So, AJ, it might be nice to have a little bit of an introduction about yourself for people that don't know you, just so we can get for a little bit of a feel for what it is that you do. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so I am a supervisor. Um, I started my journey uh, over 12 months ago now. Um, but before that, uh, I was an IT project manager, so a completely different field. Um, and for me, mortgages uh, was sort of an obvious choice when I started to follow my passion, follow my purpose in life. Um, I've always had an interest in personal finance and property since the age of 18. Uh, you know, um, my dad once took me to, to see one of his clients um, around that time. And, you know, this guy had a mansion, he had a massive property. And I was like, you know what? This is amazing. You know, he's got these you know, chandeliers, these marble floors. He's got like, the latest tech and everything. This is something I want to do. Well, I want to. I want to find out how he's done this as well. And you know, one of the things he's done is invested in property uh, for himself. And I thought, you know what? Let me just go and see how I can get myself into it. Took me a while, obviously, uh, um, but um, yeah, I, I just have a passion for personal finance and property. And mortgage just seemed like the obvious thing to do because it, it covers both aspects. And helping people, you know, achieve their dreams, achieve their financial goals, is something that I've always, um, you know. I find I take a sense of pride and achievement in that. So that's why that's how I ended up uh, doing my qualifications when lockdown hit. I got the time, and here I am, 12, 14 months later. You know, go got my own uh, advisory business, and and it's going well so far. And we know each other through Mahmood, of course, Mahmood Moji. Shout out to Mahmood because AJ was one of the delegates on Mahmood's course, and I was helping you create that story that you referred to and you told me about the four p's of mortgages and i thought let's get aj on the dentist who invest podcast because i want to hear about this angle regarding mortgages that we never hear or i certainly never come across before and all i know is there's four p's at this point so i'm looking forward to learn what those are maybe you'd like to jump straight in and start telling us yeah absolutely so you know when it comes to mortgages we find it really complicated to uh, actually you know, get our heads around how the actual how it actually works, how lenders look at 
um, our applications, you know, how we actually get the money that we need to buy the house that we need or the investment property that we need. So what I've come across is something called the full piece, which I think is really powerful that helps, uh, you know, make something so complex and breaks it down into different things, which makes it so easier. So the four piece actually stands for property, people, purpose, and product. And it's really simple because you're breaking it down into four different things that actually combined together can make your application really strong and really powerful, um, um, you know, when you send it submit to the lender. And it covers all the aspects that the lender wants to see. So when you're talking about property, you're actually talking about the assets that you're actually securing the mortgage against. You know, what, um, you know, what type of property is it? Is it going to be a flat? Is it going to be a house? Is it a freehold, leasehold? Um, you know, how many bedrooms does it have? How many bathrooms, kitchens, uh, um, you know, the parking spaces? Does it have a garage? You know, is it standard construction, non-standard construction? Everything and anything to do with the property falls under that category. And that's one area that the lender is going to assess. You know, when they do the valuation report, um, they're going to check, you know, what the resale, uh, resale value would be, what the current market value is going to be. Um, you know, does it have any restrictions that are going to affect it? You know, if it's got something like Japanese knotweed or if it's got a flat roof, for example, if it's above a, sh- a commercial shop, you know, every detail of that property will be inspected by the lender and that falls under the property category. Then you've got people, which is you, you know, as an applicant, you know, there's one person applying, two people applying, four people applying. You know, each and every person is going to be scrutinized about their income, their expenses, their credit report. Uh, if they've got adverse credit history, you know, even stuff, even something simple as your age, it, it all impacts, uh, you know, you as a person and how uh, how you are in front as a profile in front of the uh, in front of the underwriter who's going to be reviewing your case. And then you go to um, you go to purpose, which is which is all about your intention, and that underlyingly helps the um, helps the underwriter know what exactly are you buying this property for. You know, what's your intention? Is it your first home? You know, you want to get on the property ladder. Um, are you looking to, you know, start investing in property? Um, you know, and if you're investing in property, what's your plans for the for the next five years? Are you just looking at one property? You're looking at, you know, building a portfolio. What type of portfolio? All that kind of stuff. You know, what what is your intention behind the and the driving force making you want to go and buy that property? And that purpose is really important as well because we always focus on the property and the people. But the purpose actually needs to align to what the lender's values are and the core values of the lenders are. Because if we don't, you know, if my values don't align to yours, you're not going to necessarily want to, you know, invest in me or, or give me the money that I need to go ahead with my business and, and what I want to achieve and my goals going forward. And finally, product. You know, product is all about, you know, does the lender have the product that you're looking for? Uh, and is a right to your needs and circumstances today. So when we talk about product, we talk about interest rates. We talk about if it's fixed, or if it's variable, if it's tracker. What type of you know? Are you what type of product are you happy with? What loan to value are you going with? Are you going with a really high loan to value, so you have a low deposit? Um, and you know all those kind of things centered around the product. Are you looking to pay the? Are you looking for any fees associated with the product, or you want a product without any fees? Um, and where's your deposit coming from? Because that affects the product as well. Um, and obviously, for first-time buyers, there's a lot of schemes going on, and they have certain products as well for those uh, for those um, for those type of buyers as well, and schemes available. Or right now, something that's really big is eco-friendly schemes, so green uh, green mortgages for those houses that have a really good um, you know energy performance uh, rating as well. Um, so again, and that all impacts what, what kind of products you can apply for and, and go for. And if you go for the wrong one you'll be rejected automatically because you don't fit the product criteria. 
So all those four things, the property, people, purpose, and product are so key. And if you get them all right, you know, your application, you know, should go through successfully first time without any issue at all. You know, I recently had a revel- revelation on mortgages and I realized that actually they're a little bit more of an art form. It's more about assessing the person in front of you, figuring out what's appropriate for them specifically, and then going from there rather than a one size fits all. Here's a mortgage, etc. That was the thing that I realized recently. And that is also basically what you're touching at with those property, purpose, people and product is another way of saying that or is another revel- another way of saying that rel- revelation that I had before because I had this understanding in my head that it was very binary or there wasn't that many things to choose from but actually it's an art form it, it really is and you know there's a every, nowadays given the fact that you know the world is changing you know we've got technology at our fingertips uh, you know with the economic advances we're making you know uh, there is a product for everything and anything that you want to do. Um, and you're right, you know, it's an art form, it's a marketplace like anything else. And you have to find the right thing for you that suits your needs and your circumstances as well. So, um, yeah, it absolutely is an art form. And, you know, uh, mortgage advisors are are the ones who have mastered the skill of how to find the right lender for the right circumstances, for the right people, for the right time. If we're considering buying a house, now here's the thing. When it's our first time property, the tax treatment is so lucrative. We're just talking about first time prop, you know, our first time buyers at this point, or we're talking about our primary residence because after that it becomes a little bit more complicated, right? Primary residence is pretty much a no brainer because of the tax treatment, and it's something that in the UK is prioritized financially, but also culturally as well. It's like the received wisdom that we should all try to get a house on lockdown as soon as we can. The massive benefits come at the tax end, of course, because you'll have to correct me on this one, but isn't it up to a million? You don't have to pay any taxes when you're selling it on. Is that correct? Or is it, is there, what is uh, that? So, so how is, so when you buy the property, first of all, you don't, up to 300,000 pounds, you don't pay any stamp duty, which is a, which is a form of tax as well. So right, yeah. that's, that you don't pay. But um, with, the, with the 1 million one, where you're looking at more inheritance, so oh. your, prim- your primary residence, uh, there's a, I think it was in 2017, um, there was a new uh, sort of regulation that came out to say on top of the £325,000 allowance each of us gets for inheritance tax before we start paying, which is our threshold, if you have a primary residence, you get an extra £175,000. So that takes you to half a mil. For one person. So if, if if you're joined, if you're married, for example, that's a million pounds as you're talking about. So if you're passing your your primary residence onto your kids or to your beneficiaries after you pass away, you can pass a million pounds of a property value. Obviously, you're taking all your other things into your account from the estate perspective, but you can pass on a million pound property without having to pay a penny to the tax. Real quick, guys, I've put together a special report for dentists entitled The Seven Costly and Potentially Disastrous Mistakes That Dentists Make Whenever It Comes to Their Finances. Most of the time, dentists are going through these issues and they don't even necessarily realize that they're happening until they have their eyes opened. And that is the purpose of this report. You can go ahead and receive your free report by heading on over to www.dentistinvest.com forward slash podcast report. Or alternatively, you can download it using the link in the description. This report details these seven most common issues. However, most importantly, it also shows you how to fix them. 
Really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Isn't there a maximum value for your primary residence when it hits a certain threshold? Prior to this threshold, whatever it is, and I thought it was a million, but maybe it's obviously different. There's a certain threshold that before that you don't pay capital gains tax when you sell it on. Is that, yes, is that a different threshold? Is there a threshold on that, or have I? No, that? no. So the threshold. So there's no threshold there. It's basically if oh. you're selling your primary residence and you're buying a secondary residence, you don't pay any capital because you're moving a uh, you're moving home. You're not paying capital gains tax. It's not an investment. Right. Um, it's a personal use property. So for personal use properties, there is no uh, as uh, for your first home. There's no, or your primary residence. There is no capital gains tax at all. It's it's exempt completely. But when you are selling, let's say, let's say you you bought your first a lot. See, a lot of a lot of first-time buyers find themselves down the line as accidental landlords because what they tend to do is they don't want to sell that first property. They want to turn into a, a into a buy-to-let and then they're buying the second property, uh, which is going to be their primary residence. So when they go then later on when they go to sell that um, their first property if they wanted to in the future, they could uh, they would have to pay capital gains tax on it. Um, unless the capital appreciation is less than the threshold um, that is today. So again, so that, that's where you can, you can make, you can still sell it for a profit, but not pay the, the capital gains tax because you're under the threshold. Right. I'm totally with you. Okay. That's good. I'm glad you cleared that up. But yeah, the conventional wisdom is that as long as the house valuation outpaces the interest increase, you know, the rate of increase in the mortgage due to interest, then you're golden, right? Absolutely, you know, um, especially in the last two years, where we've seen a massive boom in prices across the country. Um, I was reading an article by Knight Frank the other day, really interesting one, and uh, it basically gave a five-year view of of where the where it sees the uh, the property market. And you know, we've had issues with inflation recently. We've we've got a, sort of a, um, a spike in sort of prices across the board in terms of cost of living. Um, and you know the stock market's even gone down, but property prices still continue to increase even with so much pressure. And the question is why? And it's, it's a simple answer. And I was that that um, the article was basically referencing the fact that there is a huge amount of demand and the supply still cannot keep up with it. Um, you know, of all, all all shapes, sizes of property at all. When you talk about flats, we talk about houses, and across the country, it's not just in like you know the uh, north or. Northwest or the northeast or up there, up there, it's even in the south regions as well. There's still a there's still an expected increase. Um, so yeah, you know, property prices, you know, it's, it's a massive, massive asset even for a first time buyer. At what point should we start having a conversation with a mortgage advisor as to when we're thinking about buying a house? So should we involve you in the conversation as soon as possible, or is it the sort of thing that we just save as much as we can? We have a vague idea of what we're looking for. And then approach you at some point when we're thinking about uh, when when we're just about to go through with the deal. How does that process look? Is that good to get you involved as soon as possible, or is there no not necessarily any benefit to that? My in my opinion, I think it's it's great to get you there, uh, get to speak to mortgage advisor as soon as you can, because what they'll be able to tell you is where you are today, um, and you know you then know where you need to be for when you're actually ready to start applying. So a lot of people. F- to to save up the money to find the house and then get an offer accepted and then speak to a mortgage broker and then they get told oh hang on a minute you can't afford to raise or borrow as much as you thought you can 
because of X, Y, Z. So, you know, if you, if you speak to a mortgage advisor up front, um, they'll be able to do all the, the assessment up front and tell you, even if it's very high level and they'll, they'll tell you, you still, uh, you know, based on your income or based on your circumstances, you need to wait, you know, maybe six months or a year or have some, have some sort of documentation, which you haven't got today, uh, and give you that sort of um, insider secret knowledge. It's not a secret, though, um, to actually get on the, you know, fast track your journey. Because I think a lot of people realize that they've made an offer on a property and then they go, oh, I need to speak to an advisor now and see what, how much I can borrow. And the estate agents usually nowadays, because of the because the market is so hot, are looking for um, people who are ready with decision principles um, and deposits to go forward so, uh, and put an offer towards uh, a property to the vendor. So, you know, it's really important, you know, as part of your preparations, speak to an advisor then and see what, see how they can help you uh, get ready. Awesome. AJ, is it safe to assume that you're somebody who invests his money as well via an ISA or a GIA or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I've got my own ISA. I've got, um, I've got two, one for me, one for the missus. Um, and funny enough, I've got a JISA as well for the little one as well. So my, uh, my newborn, who's one years old now, so... First thing I did when he was born, after naming him, of course, was to open a open a junior ISA for him. That's absolutely for sure, man. It's it's one of the best ways to invest in your kid's future. So yeah, definitely. That's awesome. What do you buy within those ISAs? Are you mainly an index man or individual stocks? Um, I've got a mix of both. I've got uh, I've got uh, funds um, and I've got stocks as well. Um, when I when I look at it, uh, I, I like to have a diverse portfolio because. You know, it's really given even like you know something that's happened with the market recently. You know, if you've got a, a portfolio that covers the whole world, you can sort of um, it basically it yeah, it absorbs the shock of something going down with something else going up. So you know, um, diversifying portfolio is really important. And I've you know since the age of eighteen, I've been researching and and learning about capital markets, forex and stuff like that. And and you know, it's it's another area of passion of mine. And I just and I just know that that's the way, you know, multiple sources of income is the way to to financial freedom. Well this is it, you know, if you're clever enough about how you invest your money within the ISA, you can invest in such a way that the only thing that will ever sink your ISA is if the world economy collapses. And if the world economy collapses, we've got bigger things to worry about. You're basically aligning yourself with the fortunes of the global economy if you're clever and you know what you're doing. And not only, only that, you know, I, the way I do it is I'll save my money because, and that will be my deposit. So when I want to put, when I want to then move that money towards buying an actual property or an, or an asset, I'll just move it across and then start again because it's it's all about compounding, and um, you know you can compound in both ways. And you know, who's, there are so many different types of asset classes available. We always think about property and and you know um, investing as and in the capital markets as one way, but there are so many different ways. You know, you can make money from absolutely anything nowadays. You know, with the with the technology and the global market. So you just have to be you just have to be smart of how you use money and how you diversify. I'm glad you said you're also an investor because I wanted to ask you for your take and your opinion on saving for a first house versus investing your money. How did that look for you? What do you recommend to your clients? Is there a split or should we focus on one over and above the other? So I always I always say, you know what, get money from the government as much as you can. You know, it's, you've got schemes available to you as first-time buyers, which were not there uh, during my time. And 
you know, a lot of these schemes have come up in the last five years, five to six years. Um, the lifetime ISA being, you know, a really good one now, where you, you know, the government gives you one thousand up to one thousand pounds towards your property, and, and you only have to, you know, for every pound, for every four pounds you put in, the government will give you a pound towards your property. So, in actual fact, you know, a twenty-five percent increase, you know, in your making your money work for you. Where else would really you get a twenty-five percent return? You know where your money is going to be made for you as well. As long as you meet the criteria and you check for the specifics um, to ensure that when you are buying the property, you are going to meet the criteria because it does have uh, some slight, um, you know, uh, considerations and criteria that you need to be uh, wary of. But still, twenty-five percent return as a first-time buyer, I don't think I'm going to get that anywhere else. I would absolutely think about using uh, using a lifestyle, um as a first-time buyer. You'd be lucky to get that in your stocks and shares, ISA. It's, well, here's the thing. I mean, over the very long term, compounding kicks in. You know, we're talking three to five years. Maybe you could outpace it, but you'd have to have a bit of good fortune on your side. A 25% guarantee, however, is totally another thing. That's a guarantee, you know. And, and, not, only that, and, and not only that, because it's a lifestyle, it's an lifestyle at the end of the day, you can have a stocks and shares version as well. So 25% plus whatever you make in the market. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we should caveat that with it comes out of your ISA allowance, doesn't it? So oh, that yeah. four grand that you put in is four grand less you can put in your stocks and shares ISA. I should mention as well about the LISA, correct me if I'm wrong, AJ, but you ha- you can only cash it in after two years of investing in it. Uh, 12 months. Oh, 12 months. Okay, brilliant. Oh, I didn't know you that. Hold okay. it, you need to hold it for 12 months minimum. Yeah. You cash it out. And you can't actually cash it out, so don't try and cash it out. You need to get a solicitor when you're pledging the property to cash it out for you. That's yeah. the only way you'll get the money. Otherwise, you'll have the penalty to pay for it. And also, the property has to be under 450 grand, I believe, as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. As, yeah. as far as I remember, as well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And what's there's a minimum contribution on the LISA as well, I believe. Uh, to be honest, not that I'm aware of. I don't remember if we call having a minimum contribution. It's just that you have to wait 12 months to get the bonus. So you have to hold it. For, even if you have four pounds in there, they'll take the one pound and, and use that. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't recall having one. But, yeah, there is definitely a 12-month minimum holding yeah. uh, time period. I think ISAs are awesome for first-time. LISAs specifically are awesome for first-time buyers. There's also the help to buy ISA as well, which is a little less informal. There's more – you can take your money – out of that as well, without any penalties. Whereas the LISA, um, I think so, there might. This, is there a penalty for taking it out, or is it just that you lose out on your twenty five percent increase? So how it works? So the, the help to buy ISA actually doesn't exist anymore. It's actually stopped. Oh, um, yeah. So they 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 replaced it with the LISA. Um, but anybody who already opened a help to buy ISA can still use it up to up to twenty thirty. So you still have a good eight years to buy a first home with that money there. And you, like you said, there's no penalty if you take it out. Um, in the life side itself, uh, you can put, you know, for, for, you can put up to £4,000 a year. You can get up to a bonus of £1,000. Um, but if you decide to take the money out yourself, you pay a 5% penalty on whatever you've put in and you lose your bonus as well. So assuming you put £1,000 in, uh, you're going to get a 250 bonus. You lose that 250 bonus, but you don't get a thousand pounds back. You get a thousand pounds minus five percent back. Um, you know, so that's fifty pounds. And that's like you lose as well. You don't invest it within the LISA, though, do you? In stocks, 
You can. Yeah, yeah, you can. You can. You can get cash LISA or you can get stocks and shares LISA as well. So again, like I said, 25% you'll get as your guaranteed bonus and anything extra, if it's invested as well, you can get all that investment as well to deposit. The only thing about that is, let's say you invest in the LISA and then you're wildly successful. I mean, let's say you generate like 50,000 pounds. Does that mean you get an extra 25% on top? Is that you, how get, you get the 25% on the money you put in, not on the capital. Ah, there we go. That's the small thing. I wish that was the case, James. I wish. That would be brilliant. That would be brilliant. Any savvy investors out there would be rubbing their hands together on that one. But, you know, that's cool. I didn't know that, actually. I've never owned Eliza. I, I know of them. I know all of the rules. But I don't know the ins and outs, like what I would know with a stocks and shares ISA. So yeah, interesting. No, very lucrative for first-time buyers, Lysas. The other use for them, interestingly, is for people who are coming up to retirement age because you can cash out when you're 55, I believe. Um, I think you can cash out when you're 60 with the Lysa. Um, retirement age now is 55, but you can only open one up to your 40th birthday. Yeah. Um, so you can open... Anytime before your 40th birthday, up to your 40th birthday, cash out on your 60. You can put every year for up to £4,000 up to the age of 50. So, and you'll get your, you know, 1K bonus every for every year up to 1K. And then you just let it sit there until you're 60 before you can withdraw it penalty free. The only downside is that if you want to take full effect of compounding, you want all your money to be in one place. That's the flip side to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is the flip side to it. So there is that to consider, even though you do get a bonus. So just something else to chuck in there. Plus, if you somebody out there who wants total flexibility on your money, which I am a big fan of, I want the ability to be able to withdraw my money at any point rather than have T's and C's around it, then that might be something that puts you off as well. I heard an interesting way of describing a pension the other day. So Elisa can be compared to more of a pension. Uh, I suppose, rather than a flexible saving account. And the reason for that is because obviously, like I say, there's certain stipulations around taking it out. A pension is an investing account with T's and C's. Yeah. That's yeah, all it exactly. is. Exactly. Because you, you, you can't take your money out when you want to. Um, you know, you can only use certain funds and certain platforms for it. And it's the same thing with Lysa. You know, there it, it it was expected when it was announced that it would be a wide takeover of, you know, different providers and lenders who, who would actually, uh, you know, uh, offer the LISA, but it didn't happen uh, as the government wanted to. So it's actually a select number of builder societies and, um, and sort of, um, you know, platforms that actually do allow or, yeah. or um, give you the option of using a LISA. So again, shop around, look around for the best deals. Some of them do offer good sort of sign-up incentives as well. So see what you can find. Yeah, and going back to the T's and C's thing, it's all about figuring out if the T's and C's work for you rather than just taking the knowledge, the received wisdom from someone else and thinking, oh, well, it's worked for them. It must work for me. It's 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 more of an individualized, personalized journey than that. And it's just an interesting way of looking at it. I was also going to say something as well. Maybe you'll know more on this than me. Lysa providers... When you have stocks and shares provi- stocks and shares providers, there's hundreds of them. Okay, stocks and shares ISAs. Lices are a little bit more exclusive. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder in the stocks and shares lices what the spread of investment assets is like. I wonder what the diversity is like. I wonder if it's as good necessarily as some of the stocks and shares providers out there. Is that anything you know something about? 
Uh, I have not obviously researched every single provider. Um, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I suppose what I meant was, are they, is, to your knowledge, are the LISA providers at least comparable to the a decent standard stocks and shares ISA provider? I suppose that's what I mean. Um, I don't think so. I think they're, they're more um, fixed funds that you can invest in. Yeah. Uh, and, and sort of those type of, um, you know, the ones that are... Like you said, you know, it's similar to pensions. You know, you can't invest, depending on which provider you're with for pensions, you are sort of limited to what you can invest in. It's the same with myself. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not a, a vast spread as that a normal stock advisor would do. What we have to understand, we should caveat that with, with some of the stocks and shares ISA providers. The range is just so diverse that it might be difficult to compare. So it might be a reflection of the quality of the stocks and shares provider rather than the shortcomings of LISA providers. But that would be an interesting one, actually. I, it, I like to say, I've never owned one. Yeah, it really is. And I think it's also down to the provider and what they um, what they offer, because you can have a provider that offers a stocks and shares LISA and a stocks and shares ISA, but they may offer more variety of spread with the ISA than with the LISA as well. So again, it, it, even if you've got the same products or the two different products with the same provider, it may restrict you there as well. So yeah, it's, it's about doing your research and, and seeing, because a lot of them tell you on the websites what they will give you access to, what funds and what, what markets you'll have access to. So it's about doing that homework and finding out actually, you know, do they have investments that you feel comfortable putting your money into? Another thing to consider is people who are investing, let's say they have one of these stocks and shares, license. What, you'll, what your FA will typically tell you is that if you go into the stock market, and if you buy funds, if you buy, if you invest using those assets and you, if you buy with a long-term perspective, you can expect to make money over the time span of about three to five years. But people who are saving in ELISA will typically be wanting to buy a property maybe even before that point. So just something to be wary about. Okay, if it's a cash ELISA, I totally get it. Yeah. But as well as that, if you are going to have, just like when you have a stocks and shares ISA, it's not, you can't just have the ISA. It's knowing what to do with it. Are you with me? Yeah. Like, I, I feel like that's, those two things are conflated quite a lot where people will say, oh, I've got my stocks and shares ISA. Now I'm investing. But a stocks and shares ISA is actually not as good as a cash ISA if you don't, if the money's just sat in there. Because at least in a cash ISA, you're getting some flipping interest. You know what I mean? Whereas that's not the case in the stocks and shares I said. That's when you have to begin to educate yourself. But in my opinion, the education to take yourself from someone who understands the fundamentals and understands what you must do to be able to use one of those accounts successfully is actually less than a lot of people would think. If you, Particularly if you want to do it to a basic level and just begin to buy funds, funds reflecting the valuations of indexes, as we were saying. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh... With, with, with any investment, you have to do your due diligence and your homework on funds. It's so key because, you know, I mean, it's, it's an amazing phrase and everybody, you know, doesn't remember all the time. But if you plan to fail, you fail to plan. Or if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, you know, at the end of the day. So you have to do your homework on funds. You have to plan. You need to make sure you know what you're doing. And like you said, if it's going to take three to five years, but you want to buy your property in two years time, you need to understand the risk. That if the market falls at the time you're buying your property, your investment falls as well. So do you really want to take that risk for your deposit towards your property purchase as well? So again, a lot of factors to consider, a lot of things to think about before you make your, before you make your final decision. Love it. 
Ali, we're going to we're going to be drawing a line under the proceedings in just a minute. Podcast is coming towards the end, coming up to about the 30, 40 minute mark. I want to know, short and sweet, succinct, if you could go back and speak to yourself as a first time buyer or to anybody out, out there in the audience today who perhaps needs to hear this, what are the best pieces of advice that you could give yourself as a first time buyer for somebody who is seeking a mortgage? What would you do differently? Uh, wow. Um, preparation for me has to be the key thing that I would do differently. When I was buying my first home, I had no clue what I was doing. I was literally just, you know, following like a sheep as to what everybody was telling me, you know, this is what, this is the next step, this is the next step. But I really didn't understand myself what I needed to do and how I need to be prepared. Um, I, I think preparation is the most essential part of any um, you know, uh, property purchase, especially for a first-time buyer, because you're so new to the game, so new to the market, it's really key you understand how it actually works and, you know, speak to people around you, speak to professionals, uh, mortgage advisors, solicitors, uh, estate agents, if you can as well, um, just to help you understand the process, um, how it actually works, how lenders assess your application, what you need uh, to have ready, what documentation you need to read, have ready, uh, your credit score should look. Um, and the key thing is, how much can you actually borrow? How much can you actually, um, afford, you know, how much would lenders be willing to give to you based on your current circumstances, based on your current income, your expenses, um, et cetera, as well? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you want to know that you you have the best opportunity to, uh, to, buy, your, to buy your first home. And, you know, there are opportunities out there, there are schemes out there, government schemes that are lender schemes that can definitely help you you know get on the poverty ladder it's about finding the one that's uh, suitable for you um that's of value to you as well and preparation for, for me has always been the key thing that I've, I've noticed because those people who are prepared tend to be able to get on the ladder faster than any than those who are not and who are rushing last minute to try and get everything ready more after the note not those ones are the ones that normally fall through um, so yeah, preparation for me is is 100 the key thing, um, and it doesn't matter, you know. Even if you want to start speaking to somebody two years in advance of you purchasing your property, that's cool because you know it's not going to it's not some it's not something that happens overnight. And um, you need you need you know that knowledge. You need to be arming yourself with that knowledge up front, um, even if it's you know two years in advance, a year in advance, six months in advance, um, to get you ready. For when the time comes, then it's just boom, done. Just get it there. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for giving up your time today to appear in the Dentist Invest podcast. If anybody would like to know more about Ali, his full name is Ali Jawad Mamdani. You'll be able to find him on the group on Dentist Invest. Feel free to reach out to Ali if you'd like to know more. Ali, as I say, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. We're going to wrap things up just now. We will speak again very soon. Thanks, James. I appreciate your time. And uh, uh, and like, like James said, anybody who wants to get in touch, please feel free to. Happy to answer any questions you have. Thanks, James. Tough stuff, mate. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with information on new podcasts which are released weekly. Please also feel free to leave a positive review so others can learn about this podcast and benefit from it. I would also encourage any fans of the podcast to sign up to the free Facebook community from which the podcast originated. Please search Dentist Who Invest on Facebook and hit join to become
become part of a community of thousands of other dentists interested in improving their finances, well-being and investing knowledge. Looking forward to seeing you on there.